Uh, yeah, we're going to be continuing this Sunday School series. Last week, we tried to answer the question, what is the congregation? This week, we're going to try and answer the question, what is prayer? And to begin, I want to look at 1 Chronicles 28, verses 9 and 10. 1 Chronicles 28, verses 9 and 10. This is David's charge to his son Solomon, as David is about to leave the throne and hand it over to his son. And I want you to notice verses 9 and 10, it's the exact same idea as what we heard in the sermon, but I want you to notice more importantly how prayer fits into David's charge to Solomon. First Chronicles 28, verse 9. First Chronicles 28, verse 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father, and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. But notice most importantly, that gospel promise he makes to his son. If you seek the Lord, he will be found by you. This is one of the chief benefits of the gospel, and we enjoy it primarily through prayer. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your gospel promises, and we give you thanks for the reality that the one true and living God who has created and sustains all things is our Father in the Lord Jesus. And as a good Father, you rejoice to hear the petitions and to commune with your children. We pray now, O Lord, as we look at the topic of prayer that you would help us to understand what prayer is and to be more diligent in this most necessary and blessed duty. And we pray it all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. So to catch us up a little bit, for those that uh, may not have been here for the first lesson, this series of Sunday School lessons is explaining a motion that the session passed several months ago. Uh, That motion is that the Session of Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church believes that the Scriptures teach that women ought not to pray audibly in a meeting of the congregation as the congregation. Last week, we looked at the definition of a congregation. What do we mean by a congregation? And we noticed four things that make up a congregation. Anybody remember what those four things are that define a congregation? First off, it has to be made up of something. There has to be something that the congregation is made of. This podium is made of wood. So what is a congregation made of? Specific kind of people, though. Christians... And we're Presbyterians, so it also includes their children. Professing believers and their children. But that's not enough for a congregation. You have to have a form. There has to be a regular 
uh, pattern. And what is the form of a congregation? That's the next thing that's required to have a congregation. Under Say it again. Under, under the authority of officers. That's right. You've got a group of professing Christians under the authority of officers. <clears throat> but that's still not enough. You've got to have something that gives this group life. What is it that gives a congregation its life? <coughs> Very good, pardon me. <coughs> the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we have believers, we have the authority of officers, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but you still don't have a congregation yet. There's one final thing. And this has to do with the purpose of the gathering. And what is that? Hmm... Starts with a W. Very good. Worship. To have a congregation, you have to have a group of believers gathered under the authority of its officers, filled with the Holy Spirit, gathered for the purpose of worship. Or, another theological way to put that is union and communion with God. That's what worship is. Union and communion with God. Those four things are what's required for a congregation. If you take any of those away, then you don't have the congregation that we're speaking about. You can have a group of believers under the authority of officers, filled with the Holy Spirit, gathered for the purpose of Bible study. That's not the congregation. Not in the sense that we're describing Okay? This is just review for those that weren't there. One thing I'll say at this point, just to remind all of us, if you have questions um, about anything that we go over, questions about the material prior, this material, or the final lesson, which will be next um, Lord's Day, send them to me via email. I'm collecting a body of questions that I'm going to deal with at the end, because I know we're covering some pretty heavy stuff. Now, we want to look at prayer. We've defined the congregation. Now we want to define prayer. A little bit of introduction here. Prayer is at one and the same time the most important benefit of the gospel and the most neglected duty of the gospel. Especially today. John Calvin went so far as to say that the chief benefit of divine teaching, is what I referenced in the sermon from his commentary on Hebrews, the chief benefit of divine teaching is a sure confidence in calling upon God. As, on the other hand, listen carefully, the whole of religion falls to the ground and is lost when this certainty is taken away from consciences. Now, Calvin is dealing with Roman Catholics. He says that Roman Catholic doctrine removes confidence from the Christian heart because the Roman Catholic teaching says you are a dirty sinner and you have to do all of these other things to not be a dirty sinner and uh, there's no way to know when you have done enough. That takes confidence away, especially in prayer. But Calvin says this is one of the chief benefits of divine teaching. But notice also he says... When confidence in prayer is taken away, all of religion falls to the ground. In our 
psychological society. Most would say the chief benefit of the gospel is the sense of inner peace that Christians enjoy through the blood of Christ. Now, I'm not saying inner peace is worthless. I'm not saying a sense of psychological joy and peace from the forgiveness of sins is um, invaluable or not valuable. I'm talking about a matter of priorities. And I think what you find in our psychological society, what I mean by psychological society, is that modern society is obsessed with adjusting your inner sense of well-being. That's what modern society is obsessed with. So when I say we have a psychological society... This is what most people are thinking about. And most people would say the sense of inner peace that comes from the blood of Christ is the chief benefit of the gospel. This arises, meaning this misappropriation of the chief benefit, from our misconception that the Christian life is a life that I live for Christ, for my own glory. Rather than His life that He lives in me for His glory. Let me say that again. I think uh, several, many people today misunderstand the Christian life and they think of it as something that I do for Christ, for my own glory. Rather than what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, the Christian life is his life that he lives in you for his own glory. This is, this is the divide uh, in the modern church about what the Christian life really is. Psychology is spirituality for them that love themselves. Prayer is spirituality for them that love God. Psychology is spirituality for those that love themselves. Prayer is spirituality for those that love God. I want to read a couple um, passages from a great book that was just given to me. Uh, A couple of choice Statements from a little book called Prayer and the Modern Man by a philosopher named Jacques Ellul. Um, Jacques Ellul, I think, is a very important modern philosopher. He's a Christian. Um, uh, he's French, and so he, he is a part of the Catholic uh, faith. But I say he's a Christian. I'm not passing judgment on his eternal state. I'm saying he approaches modern problems from a Christian worldview perspective. He, he looks at things as a Christian. I'm not saying anything about the state of his heart. I don't know that man's heart. But because of this, he has some very important things to say, especially about prayer and the modern man. Just listen to some of the things he says. Prayer is not a discourse, or we might say a dialogue. Prayer is not a conversation. It is a form of life, the life with God. 
In other words, prayer is not to be understood like a language. We don't analyze good prayer the way we analyze good language. It has none of that form or content, for it receives its content not from what I have to say, but from the one to whom it is spoken. This prayer, uh, uh, it is from the one we speak to that this speech, prayer, receives its validity. That this prayer can be what it is meant to be depends on him and not on me. Still less on my ability to speak the right language. How many of you have suffered in prayer, either privately or publicly, and you, you begin to think, I don't know how to pray. I don't know the right words to use. I can't put words together the way the pastor does. I, I could not possibly pray. Well, Alul is reminding us that that's not the point. For, of course, I can always pronounce a discourse supposedly addressed to God. I can arrange the sentences, but it is neither the harmony of the form, nor the elevation of the content, nor the fullest of the information which turns it into a prayer. It becomes prayer by the decision of God to whom it is addressed. But then its nature undergoes a change. For henceforth it is known as a prayer of Christ or a prayer of the Holy Spirit. This is how we should understand the famous statement of Paul, in which he says in the last analysis, we do not know what the content of our prayer should be, but the Holy Spirit himself intercedes with sighs too deep for words. He goes on and he says, this is often interpreted to say that our prayers are insufficient and the Holy Spirit comes and fills in the difference. The Holy Spirit comes and and gets us across the finish line, as it were. He says, that's not the case. That's not what's going on. Um, It is the entire prayer, which is the prayer of the Holy Spirit. If we conceive of prayer as language, it is then that we do not know what to put into the discourse. Only when the Holy Spirit intercedes, and in a way which cannot be expressed that is, which transcends all verbalizing, all language, then is the prayer prayer, and it is a relationship with God. Have you ever noticed this in your experience? There will be times as you pray, and sometimes it feels like you're just sort of mumbling through the list and kind of getting through saying the right things. We thank you, O Lord. We confess that we are unworthy. We thank you and praise you, etc., etc. Sometimes it feels like that when I pray. And I imagine it's felt like that for some of you. But there's other times when you pray and you have a real deep, inexpressible sense that I have been with God. And it may only have lasted for a minute. That's what he's describing. When the Holy Spirit comes and transforms our prayer into true prayer, we have that inexpressible sense that we have communed with the living God. That's what he's describing. He goes on and says uh, several other great things. Um, But then he says this. Man in our society cannot understand prayer except as a discourse. A sort of pious language addressed to God. A mode of communication. 
Every other reality is closed to him. And precisely because prayer is not that, meaning prayer is not merely a type of language that we use, because it is not that, he cannot pray in truth. And that is the tragedy. His point in this book is modern society has a lot of difficulty with prayer. And I would say primarily because modern society is materialistic. The deep spiritual realities of the existence of the living God and his presence with his people by the Spirit is lost on most people. What we have to be careful of as we approach the topic of prayer is recognizing these are the waters in which we swim. These are the pressures around us that push upon us to turn prayer into merely some words that we speak rather than a living communion with the living God. So with that, I want to move into actually defining this thing that we call prayer. First, by using the catechisms. Um, Now, as an Orthodox Presbyterian minister, as a committed Presbyterian, I'm referring to the catechisms because I believe they are an accurate summary of the teaching of the scriptures. I won't take time to justify the catechism here, That's not the point of this kind of lesson. So we can approach the catechism as a standard of doctrine that helps us get to the point quicker. That's the use of these things. So we start with Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answer 178. They ask the question, what is prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ, by the help of his spirit, with confession of our sins, and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That's Westminster Larger Catechism. Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the same question. Westminster Shorter Catechism 98. What is prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will, in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins, and thankful acknowledgement. Pardon me. Of his mercies. Now, did you notice the difference? I'll read them again. I want you to pay attention to the differences. Larger Catechism, 178. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of his Spirit, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Westminster Shorter, 98. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Do you notice the difference? Leaves out the Holy Spirit. The shorter catechism doesn't mention the Holy Spirit expressly. Now there's an important reason for this. Who knows what the larger catechism was written for? Or who the larger catechism was written to? Wait, pardon me. To whom? the larger catechism was written. I know there's going to be some English person that corrects me. Uh, yes, sir. You'd... I know it was technically it was meant for children, right? That's the next question. Well, who was the larger written for? Oh. <laughs> you, you're on the, the, save that answer. I'll ask you the next question. <laughs> the larger is written for adults or those that are more mature in the faith. Who was the shorter catechism written for? <laughs> children, that's right. Very good. 
it's written for it's written for children or those who are maybe new converts and haven't really been discipled in the faith. The difference here is not a contradiction. The shorter catechism is written to help train those who don't know what they're doing. And in training someone to pray, it's important to tell them some of these more concrete, practical things. We ask for things agreeable to His will. We do it in the name of Christ with thankful acknowledgement. For the more mature, we understand that the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts subdues us to desire the things that are according to His will. That's why the difference is there. So it's not a contradiction, it's just a matter of different audiences. Here's an example. When I'm training my kids to reconcile, I will walk them through the step, apologize, say that you forgive them, now give each other a hug. I go through these these very concrete steps because they don't know what they're doing. Later on, as they get it, they'll begin to spontaneously say, I sinned against my sister, I need to go apologize. And then they'll attempt to make reconciliation under their own power. That's what's going on here. Um, So, we've got the definition from our catechisms. And I want to sort of break out these definitions in the same way that we broke out the definition of the congregation. What we use... is this idea of... No, so close. Fourfold causation. Uh, Just as a refresher, this is a way of defining things that began with Aristotle and was picked up through the medieval schools and was used for great effect by our Reformed forefathers, especially in the Confession and Catechisms. This definition of prayer is actually a great example of how this way of understanding things works. Now, who remembers what the four causes are? This is bonus points for your your knowledge of philosophy. So if you don't know it, don't don't feel bad. Zane's going to take a crack. Give me the first one. Material. The material. This is the stuff something's made of. Wood. What's the next one? Formal. This is the pattern or the shape that the material is put into. What's the next one? Efficient. This is really a problem. The efficient, which is the thing that makes it happen. So if you've got wood, and you've got a uh, podium set of blueprints, you've got the material and you've got the form, but you don't have a podium yet. You've got to have a workman to actually make it happen. What's the final one? Oh. (laughs) It's called final. Final. Now, ponder this while I get a more sufficient uh, or efficient marker.
So when we, we look at the Catechism's definition of prayer, we're going to find these four things. And the first is the material, or the, the actual substance of what a prayer is. And that is... Offering our desires up to God. That is the material of prayer. That's the substance of what we're doing. Now at this point, offering our desires to God defines or is a part of all prayer. Christian and non-Christian. Every religion in the world believes that they are doing this. That's why they go to the shrines, that's why they go to the temples, that's why they go to the basilicas, that's why they do everything they do. They believe that they are offering up their desires to God. So this is just the material of prayer. Uh, Psalm 10, 17. Psalm 10, 17 gives expression to this. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear. This is merely the material of prayer. And then we have the form, or what's required for prayer. We have to go from this, and now it has to become Christian. Formal. There's two folds. It's a two-fold thing that's required. Prayer has to be offered in the name of Christ and for things agreeable to His will. Both of these things are required for true prayer. John 16.23, the Lord Jesus tells the disciples this. Uh about praying in His name. 16.23 And in that day you will ask Me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in My name, He will give it to you. So John 16.23 And then 1 John 5.14 We find things agreeable to His will. 1 John 5.14 Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So that's the formal cause of prayer. You want to offer up desires to God? Fantastic. You want God to actually hear them? You have to pray in the name of Christ for things agreeable to His will. Now this is important, especially the 1 John 5 passage. Who knows what the last verse in John's first letter is? What's the last thing he says to the church? Hmm. Hmm. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. 
Interesting way to end a New Testament letter, isn't it? John is very concerned that the people are not betrayed or led into worshiping a false god. The idolaters do this. Muslims, Buddhists, all of them. They do this. Christians do this, this way. If you don't do it this way, it's not Christian prayer. So we've got the material. We've got the form. But now we need the efficient. What's the, what's the thing that makes it happen? Ah, very good. The Holy Spirit. The presence or with the help of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 26 and 27 is what uh, Elul was speaking about. But I'll just read it for us. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So the presence of the Spirit is the efficient cause of prayer actually being prayer. Ephesians 6.18, this is why Paul says, uh, I'll just read it. Ephesians 6.18, Paul says to us, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Prayer has to be in the Spirit if it's going to be true prayer. It has to be done by the help of the Spirit. And now the final cause. Remember, we spoke last time about final causes. Another word for this is the telos. That's a Greek word. Telos simply means goal or purpose or the thing that you're aiming at. So what would the final cause of prayer be? Say it again. To honor God. Very good. The final cause of prayer or our goal in praying, we'll use uh, catechism language, Is the glory of God. What is the chief end of man? Very good. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So the final, the the, the reason that we pray, what we're shooting for as prayer is to glorify the Lord. Now this is expressed in the catechism in two ways. Go back to the definition. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God. Is that what it says? What does the catechism say? Offering up of desires, name of Christ, by the help of the Spirit with... Somebody give it to me. Confession of our sins and... Thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. It doesn't say the glory of God in the answer. 
What it does do is describe the two primary ways that we glorify God. The first is by confessing that we are sinners, and the second is thankfully acknowledging His mercies. Let's look at some passages. The first is Joshua 7.19. Joshua 7.19. This is the very famous sin of Achan. And if you remember the story of Achan, what did Achan do? Well, Achan... Oh, was there an answer? No. Achan was an Israelite, and they conquered the city of Jericho. Jericho was under the ban. You can't take anything out of this city. It's going to be destroyed. It's a wicked Canaanite city. Achan secretly keeps a Babylonian garment and a big pile of cash. And he hides this, and because he kept this and hid it, Israel lost the next battle. Joshua is upset. He prays to the Lord. The Lord says, there's sin in the camp. Go deal with it. Finally, Joshua gets to Achan. He confronts him in verse... 19, notice what Joshua says. Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to Him. And tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. Notice how the idea of glorifying God is parallel to making confession. Confessing our sins is a way that we glorify God. Psalm 51 is another example of this same dynamic. Psalm 51, David is in, this is his great prayer of confession. Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. For I acknowledge my transgressions, my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. See, David is confessing his sins in order to glorify the Lord. David condemns himself so that the Lord might be justified, so that the Lord might be honored. Now, at this point, I want to just give us a little bit of practical help here. The reason God commands us to confess our sins is not to beat us down. God does not command you to confess your sins to earn righteousness. Your confession will never match up. As great as David's confession is, it's it's never going to be good enough by itself. The reason he commands us to confess our sins is so that we would honor and glorify him. We are exalting the Lord by acknowledging that we are sinners. You find this in all the great prayers of the saints throughout the scriptures. Secondly is thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Psalm 50, verse 15, just the next psalm, one psalm back. Uh, is what we cited in the sermon as well. He says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. What he's describing is we glorify God after he has delivered us. It's another way of saying thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. So, prayer, offering our desires to God in the name of Christ, by the help of the Spirit, all for the glory of God.
Now remember, just like we did with the, the congregation, you take any one of these away and you don't have true prayer. You remove any one of these and the prayer ceases to be acceptable to God. Here's a for instance. We take away the final cause. Offering up desires in the name of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the prayer of the Pharisees. Remember Christ tells the parable? The Pharisee came into the temple said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men, like this tax collector. And Christ says that man prayed to himself. Because his goal in that prayer was not to glorify God. What was it? He was trying to glorify himself. And so Christ says, nobody's listening to that prayer. Um, You can have offering up your desires to God. Seeking even honestly to glorify God. But if it's not in the name of Christ and not by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not true prayer. This would be the prayer of Mormons. Mormons think they're offering their desires to God and we can say that sincerely they want to glorify God, at least in their confused cult. That's what they think they're doing. But it's not in the name of the true Christ. It's not by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you guys see how this works? Hopefully this is clear. At this point, I'll stop and ask, are there any questions? There's one more section I want to get through. That should go a little bit quicker, though. But this is getting us to the meat of what prayer is. Anything I need to clear up? Very good. One last thing I'll point out about this definition, I think to really help us. We, we often emphasize this when we go to the prayer closet or when we think about prayer. We, we, we tend to think prayer is when I offer my desires up to God in the name of Christ by the power of the Spirit with thankful acknowledgement. So we tend to mumble over the rest of it when we think about prayer. But what I want you to see here, this is only the beginning of what prayer is. In the name of Christ and agreeable to His will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for the glory of the Father, is really what makes something a true prayer. And if the Holy Spirit is working in your heart, and you're really praying in the name of Christ for things agreeable to His will, what will your desires be? Very good. Your desires will be His desires. Just as Christ prayed in the garden. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what did He say? Not my will be done, but yours. That's what happens in true prayer. So let me just encourage you, because I know that prayer is a very important, sometimes a very difficult duty of the Christian life. I want to encourage you. When you have set times for prayer, let me back up. You should have set times for prayer. But when you get to those set times for prayer, don't think primarily about the laundry list that you have to get through. Don't think about the theological words that you have to use. 
Think about it as a living communion with the living God. And offer up your petitions according to His will, confession and thankful acknowledgement, in the name of Christ by the power of the Spirit. And enjoy prayer as communion with the living God. Not primarily as what Jacques Ellul says, a discourse that we just throw up to heaven. Now, we have to distinguish prayer. This is going to get us closer to what the motion that we passed deals with. What we have done here is simply define the nature of prayer. What we're doing with this is defining the thing as it is. We're trying to understand prayer as a distinct thing. However, (coughs) prayer as a distinct thing doesn't exist in the abstract realm. Prayer happens at certain times, in certain places, and under certain conditions. This is what the confession means and theologians mean when they talk about circumstances. All prayer is of this nature. But not all prayer has the same circumstances around it. So let's just consider some of the circumstances we find in the scriptures. The first circumstance of prayer is silent prayer. Silent prayer is a legitimate type of prayer. It's just a certain circumstance where it's silent. One example of this would be Nehemiah. As he's about to enter the throne room of, king, uh, of the king of Persia, he's nervous, and it says, I prayed in my heart, Lord, please give me favor in this sight of this man. That's a true prayer. The circumstance was, it was silent. Another circumstance, what would be another circumstance of prayer? Audible. Audible. Or vocal means the same thing. Audible prayer or vocalized prayer. Many examples of this in the scriptures. We just read uh, in the sermon series, John 11. When Christ is about to bring Lazarus up from the dead, he vocalizes his prayer for the sake of the people around him. So vocal prayer is a circumstance of prayer. There is also... private prayer Christ talks about going to your prayer closet and shutting the door and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly so private prayer is a different is a circumstance of prayer (coughs) public would be another circumstance of prayer What's an example of 
um, a very famous public prayer in the scriptures. Hmm. Yes. That's a good one. That's a good one. And notice, I'm glad you brought that one up. These can all be interchanged or combined with one another. That was a vocal prayer in public. Right? These are not mutually exclusive categories. You can have vocal prayer in private. You can have silent prayer in public. Um... So that's a good example of public prayer. Another example would be Solomon at the temple. When they finish the temple, Solomon prays that great prayer of dedication. There are also formal prayers. As Protestants, we tend to maybe not think about this category of prayer. But there are formal prayers in the scriptures. Uh, When the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year, what was he doing in there? Anybody? He was praying. That was, as it were, a very formal, ceremonial, and uh, regulated type of prayer. All these sacrifices had to be done. could only be done this time of the year. And he went and prayed for very specific things. He confessed the sins of Israel. There is also formal prayer in the New Testament. What did the Lord teach us when he taught us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is not only a pattern for prayer, but as the confession acknowledges, it's also a true prayer. When it's offered up in the right way. You can pray the Lord's Prayer and make it your own prayer if you do it the right way. So there's formal prayer. There's also informal prayer. Uh, which would be kind of like what Nehemiah did when he was going into the king's presence. He just throws up a prayer really quick. It's not thought out. He's not premeditated. He just throws it up because he's in a sense of need. There is um, ministerial prayer. You could think about this as representative prayer. Or prayer by an officer on behalf of the church or the nation. What Eric did in the pastoral prayer, that's a form of ministerial prayer. What Daniel does in chapter 9 of his book of prophecy, that's a ministerial prayer. He's confessing sins on behalf of the body that he's a part of as a minister of that body. There's more that we could go into. I want to leave it at this point as it relates to the motion that we've been talking about. What we have said is that we believe the scriptures teach a woman ought not to pray audibly in a meeting of the congregation as the congregation. That leaves all the other kinds of prayers available to her. Not ministerial. Hope you you understand. We're not talking about that. But all the other kinds of prayer at a meeting of the congregation is open to women. The only thing we believe the scriptures teach is they ought not to do so audibly. So, 
Any questions? I know we've gone a little bit over. If there's any questions at this point, I can handle maybe one or two. More specifically, yes. So I'm going to tie a lot of this stuff up at the last one. We, we bring all this stuff together, but I will say, I will say this. Where specifically do the scriptures teach that women ought not to pray audibly? And I believe it comes down to a general principle that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34. He says, Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. Now, if if we're right about defining the congregation, and if this is legitimate to read churches as congregation the way that we've defined it, then this, this is very clear, I think. When Paul is speaking about the churches in this context, he's speaking about what we have defined as the congregation body of believers under the authority of elders filled with the Spirit, gathered for the purpose of worship. That's what Paul's talking about. So that's just one spot where we would go to. Yes, sir? Just related to that, do you think it would be beneficial to add the word corporate to that list? Yeah, this is not meant to be exhaustive, but I'm just trying to help us think through, and you're already doing it. All of these different kind of circumstances is where prayer can happen. So corporate could be a part of this list. Um, there's other things you could add. One of the things we have to be careful of when we think about prayer is that we don't fall into the sin of the Pharisees. The Pharisees engaged in public, formal prayer and ministerial prayer But the Lord condemned them constantly for what? Hypocrisy. What's that again? Praying so long. Praying so long. Basically, because they're being heard. You know, hear my words. I'm I'm, I'm a good prayer. Exactly right. They're glorifying themselves. They're praying at length. They're doing it for hypocritical reasons. Now, our temptation, because... We're, we all have a little Pharisee in us as well. Our temptation is to think that prayer or any of the other duties of the Christian life are not important if they're not done publicly. That's a real temptation we all have to face. In fact, the heart of religion, your Christianity is known not by what happens in public, but by what happens in private. Christ said, go into your closet and close the door. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So with that, we'll close with a word of prayer and then we can enjoy some fellowship and the rest of our Lord's Day. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word and we give you thanks for the gift of prayer that you do indeed hear us. We ask, O Lord, that you would teach us how to pray and teach us especially that prayer is an act of the living God in our hearts causing us to commune with Him by the power of the Spirit. We pray You would sanctify our hearts to see prayer in this light, and in seeing prayer in that light, we might know You more, we pray. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Amen.